0: Today's scripture reading is from Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14. Read with me the verses in bold, please. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the ends of the world— O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Good morning. My name's Jeff, I'm one of the elders here. And um, we're gonna look at Psalm 19 today if you hadn't already figured that out. Um, Let's ask God's blessing on our time in his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that your spirit has drawn each and every one of us here today. Lord, I ask that you would help us, Lord, to understand your word, to be blessed by your word, to grow through this time in your word, and and we just thank you, Lord, as you have made this a sweet service, and we pray you would continue to breathe life into all that takes place here. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. amen. Now my wife Karen and I, we think back sometimes remembering our parents, and we realized that there were so many legacies that mom and dad sought to build into our lives. My mom, there was a rule that's since as young as I can remember that you had to read a book for 30 minutes minimum before the TV could go on. And she instilled this love of reading in me and my brothers, which I really appreciate to this day. Uh, Karen's mother uh, was a nurse, and uh, Karen followed in her footsteps and and also became a registered nurse. Um, And another legacy that both our parents put into us and that we have sought to instill in our children is our love for for hiking and for camping. Now, for me, there's two main reasons that I love to go camping. First, it forces me to slow down. It it relieves me from a thing that was once described as the tyranny of the urgent. I can't bring my to-do list with me when I go camping. I can't start doing projects around the house. It forces me to slow down. I take off my watch, I turn off my cell phone, and, Frankly, our biggest concern is deciding when we're gonna eat the next meal. Um, Now secondly, camping, it deepens my appreciation for God's creation, and I know it just does my heart so much good to walk among the trees, to look at the mountains, the streams, the rivers, to look at the the moon and the stars at night, and, and to just be amazed at the greatness and beauty of God's creation. Now we're going to open to Psalm 19, and and before we jump into the text, it's always wise to back up a little and consider the larger context. Psalm 19, it's one of 150 psalms that makes up the book of psalms, and in Hebrew, the word psalm means a song, and it also means praise. So simply put, the book of psalms is a collection of songs of praise. Now, the main theme of the book of Psalms is the worship of God. And when we look through the Psalms, when we see God's beauty and glory in his word, and and we recognize ourselves in the trials of David and the other authors of the book of Psalms, we come to realize that our God is all powerful and more than sufficient to deal with every single one of our needs. And and when that happens, when we recognize that in creation, in God's word, our spirit-directed natural response is to draw close to God and to worship him. In the Septuagint, which is the Greek Old Testament, the word for worship means to lean towards, to kiss. When we sang our worship songs earlier, we weren't singing for each other, at least I hope we weren't. When we sing songs of worship, it's as if we are leaning towards our Heavenly Father to kiss Him. As, as we worship God, we're offering ourselves to Him and drawing close to Him, and we're leaning towards Him with our hearts and our minds. Worship is such a beautiful thing. Now, Psalm 19 has two authors, the primary one being the Holy Spirit, but it was also written by David, King David. And as a boy growing up, and as a young man, David had observed God in two primary ways. He had looked upon God's glory in the created world, and he had also studied his revelation in the written scriptures. Now, as we look at Psalm 19, we'll see that David's response to this twofold revelation of God was to worship him and to yield his life to his creator. And now within the context of the book of Psalms, which is worship, we find the central theme of Psalm 19, and that is the revelation of God himself to mankind. And if you think about that for a second, that should blow our minds, that the all-powerful God who created the entire universe and holds it in the palms of his hand that he would condescend to make himself known to you and I. What a blessing is ours. So the first section of Psalm 19 verses one through six, this deals with God's revelation in nature. Verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. So David tells us here that the heavens, the skies, the stars, the moon, the sun, the clouds, all of nature testify to the existence of a creator. And they do not merely, they don't merely suggest that he exists. They, they're they not throwing out this topic for discussion or offering some vague theory to be debated and voted on. No, they declare God's existence and they further declare his glory. So David realized that if the plants and stars and the sun are so glorious then their creator must be even more glorious. So what was it in David's life that led him to write these first six verses of Psalm 19? Now one factor must have been that David was a shepherd throughout much of his youth, and as he watched over the flock of sheep, he was responsible for David was constantly searching the plains of Israel for green pastures and sufficient water. Now, during the day, he would consider the glory of God as he watched the sun travel across the sky, and in describing the sun, David wrote, its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat." Now, after a long day of leading his sheep under the hot sun, David, as darkness began to fall, he would lead the flock as a shepherd. He would lead them to a sheepfold where they would be safe for the night. Now, this may have been a shallow cave. It may have been an area encircled by a rock wall. Um, We're not sure, but David would somehow gather those sheep for the night, and he would remove his cloak, and this was a sleeveless garment that he wore during the day, and it was made of wool, and he would use that very much like a sleeping bag. And so once he had the sheep secure, David would then lay across the opening to that sheepfold to protect his flock. And you think about it, picture him, darkness has fallen, and this glorious, glistening night sky is above him. And David, as he's drifting off to sleep, he's he's looking at the glistening of the Milky Way, he's looking at the moon and the stars and and he's contemplating my god your creation is so magnificent thank you lord and he's just contemplating the majesty and the glory of god and david as he did this as he looked at god's glory during the day and during the night he learned three main characteristics of god's revelation in nature First, David saw that this revelation is continuous. Verse 2 tells us day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There's not an intermittent revelation as if God displays his reality one week and then he hides from us the next. Psalm 19 tells us that there has never been a moment in the history of the human race, day or night, when the heavens and earth were not testifying to the existence of God. We also see in verse 2 that God's revelation is abundant. David writes that the creation pours out speech and reveals knowledge. God's revelation of himself, it's not hidden from men. God is not merely dropping hints about himself. The Hebrew word used here means to gush forth. David is painting this image of a a gushing spring that is flooding, flooding the earth with a sermon of God's existence and God's glory. And thirdly, this continuous and abundant knowledge, it's universal. Verse 3 and 4, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. Every man and woman who has ever lived has sensed this silent sermon of God in his creation. The Apostle Paul, he speaks of this in chapter one of the book of Romans, beginning in verse 19, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. So God has revealed himself in nature to all men and women. And this revelation, it is continuous, it is abundant, and it's universal. And it's, it's this silent sermon that is preached all day every day and nature it's constantly declaring to every human being in every language there is a god there is a god there is a god and that god is glorious on christmas eve in 1968 apollo 8 it was the first manned mission to the moon and it had entered lunar orbit and it began its journey around the back side, around the dark side of the moon. And there were several minutes of tension as the mission controllers, they're waiting for the communications to be reestablished when the spacecraft would finally come out from behind the moon. And as Apollo 8 began to reemerge, the three astronauts, they saw an absolutely incredible sight. They were looking at something that no human being had ever seen before. As they watched the earth rise above the horizon of the moon, the astronauts took this photo. And after witnessing this earth rise, the crew, they held a live broadcast that some half a billion people who were watching back on earth tuned into. And after briefly describing the desolation and the bleakness of the lunar landscape, the astronauts spoke the following words. In the beginning... God created the heaven and the earth, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. And they went on to to finish reading the first 10 chapters of the book of Genesis. I'm sorry, first 10 verses of the book of Genesis. (laughs) That would have been a long reading. But I find it very revealing that these astronauts, when they witnessed the Earth rise, they did not boast about their personal accomplishment. They didn't sing the praises of NASA and all the people that had worked together to pull off this incredible technological feat. But rather, as they emerged from the dark side of the moon, they looked upon their home planet rising in the distance, and their hearts and minds were lifted towards their creator. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, my wife Karen and I, we returned yesterday from a three-day trip to Yosemite. And um, this is a photo that we took on one of our hikes. The waterfall there is Nevada Falls. And the peak to its left is Liberty Cap. And the next peak over past that is the backside of Half Dome. Um, I know that Randy and Daly spent some time in Yosemite themselves recently, and my guess is like Karen and I, when you're in Yosemite, it is literally impossible not to see and hear God declaring his glory and all that he has made. But according to David's words here in Psalm 19, it's not necessary to fly to the moon or drive to Yosemite to see the glory of God and his creation. If you were to just look at a, a small flower in your backyard or, or, or watch a hummingbird as it, as it hovers or consider the inner workings of the human cell or how the, the human eye, how, how incredibly complex and beautiful it is, all these things are a deep revelation of God and our creator. They all declare the glory of God, who designed them and created them. And and David, when he acknowledged this God that was revealed in creation, that was what led him to an even deeper revelation of God in the written word. Now, while the first six verses of, of Psalm 19 they make the clear declaration that God exists and that He's glorious, the following four verses are going to begin to speak to the next logical question, and that is, what is this God like? Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever, the rules of the lord are true and righteous altogether more to be desired are they than gold even much fine gold sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb so at first blush this transition david makes from creation to the law of the lord it it seems a little abrupt and, and unexpected but but there's several commentators that 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 do see a connection between these. Back in verse six, David finishes the section of the Psalm on creation by describing the sun and he wraps up by saying, it's circuit to the end of them and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now we might think at this point, what does the heat of the sun have to do with God's word? Well, C.S. Lewis, he was a, a British theologian and scholar And he was reflecting on Psalm 19, and he imagines this young shepherd, David, working under the glare of the scorching Middle Eastern sun and experiencing, as David recalls in verse 6, that there is nothing hidden from its heat. Lewis writes, quote, as he, David, felt the sun, perhaps in the desert, searching out, searching him out in every nook of shade where he attempted to hide from it, so he feels the law searching out all the hiding places of his soul. The searching and cleansing son becomes an image of the searching and cleansing law. Now, I I think Lewis's connection is valid. I think that, that, that the way the section follows with God's law, it does make sense but there's also a big change that David takes here in some of the words he chooses beginning in verse 7. Now, this new section on Psalm 19 beginning in verse 7, it's marked by a change in the name of God that Lewis chooses to I'm sorry that David chooses to use. In the section on nature verses 1 to 6, we see the name God, which in Hebrew is El, which is a variation on the name Elohim which we see in the creation account of Genesis. That's the the word that Moses uses in the creation account of Genesis. But as the subject turns to the word of God in verse 7, the name used by David changes to Lord or Yahweh in the Hebrew. So this is the name that God revealed to Moses at the burning bush. So while Elohim points to God's creative powers, Yahweh refers more to God's desire to share a personal, intimate relationship with the people he has created. So in verse six, by using the word Elohim, it's as if the psalmist is saying, look, it's a great blessing to use your reason and your eyes and, and to look at the moon and the sun and the stars and to do, deduce that there is a God who created these things. But the creation is not enough if you want to find out who this God is, and what he offers us in his gospel. To find out how to enter into a covenant relationship with this creator, you need to go to the law. You need to open the word of God that he has revealed. You must turn to the scriptures. So let's read again verses seven through 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. David has discovered that the word of God is absolutely essential to his life, and he writes that there is great blessing for those who study it and follow God's word. David tells us that God's precepts are right, his words are true, and as such they give joy to our hearts. His commands are radiant, they illuminate the path that God would have us follow, and he assures us that there's great reward for those who walk in simple obedience to God's word. Scripture does more than lead us to Christ in the gospel. Scripture is also critical in our sanctification. Time in God's word is the primary way that we grow and become more like our savior. And notice in verse 10, David gives us an editorial of sorts as he provides a personal evaluation of what the word of God has come to mean to him. David writes, God's word, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. So David had been exposed to the word of God at an early age, which is very common for young Jewish children in those days, and the teachers that he had, they had a very interesting way of communicating to young Jewish children the preciousness of the scriptures. When David was learning the word of God as a boy, there's an old Jewish custom that most likely he was exposed to. When first beginning to study the God's word, David was taken to a teacher's house where he was given a slate with passages of scripture written on it. But the rabbi, the teacher, would then smear that slate with honey, cover it with honey, and then he would have David take a pen and trace the words of scripture on that slate. And what little boy would not take that pen and lick that honey off the pen as he's scraping over the words of scripture? I mean, it's beautiful. The teacher is driving home the point that God's word is not only precious and essential, that as, but that as we study the scriptures, it will have a sweet, sweet effect on our lives. Now, in verse eleven, we we began we were going to begin the third and final section of Psalm nineteen. So David had studied nature, and recognized the awesome and infinite power of the Creator God. He'd also feasted on God's written word and and the scriptures had become very precious to his heart and mind. Now beginning in verse 11, we see how David responds to this twofold revelation. Verse 11, moreover by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So for the first time in Psalm 19, we hear David mentioning himself. And we see here an example of the proper way that any human should respond when he or she gazes upon God's glory and in his creation and in his word. David clearly here, he recognizes the infinite gulf between him and his creator. It's, it's as if David is saying, there is a God and I'm not him. And, and this God that is altogether glorious I've got a little issue here because I'm inglorious and I'm sinful. And David falls on the mercy and grace of God. In the eighth Psalm, we see another example of David's response as he contemplates the the glory of God in the created realm. Psalm 8, beginning in verse 3, When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? David realizes that this all-powerful God that he's seen in creation is a personal God as well, a personal God of grace and mercy who cares for him. Now back in Psalm 19 here, we see that David, he's very candid about what God has shown him about himself. Who can discern his heirs? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. So David, he doesn't try to explain away his true self. He reminds me a little of the tax collector in in Luke 18, who said simply, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And and in our thin-skinned, therapeutic culture. I think David's honest self-assessment, I find it very refreshing to say the least. But he also knows that our God is a God of grace and mercy. He asks God to forgive him and help him defeat sin in his life. And notice David, he, he doesn't say that he's somehow going to pull himself up by his bootstraps and make himself innocent and perfect. No, David asks God to declare me innocent from hidden faults then he will be blameless and innocent of great transgressions if you're tracking here you may be asking the same question i'm struggling with how can i ever hope to be blameless and innocent of great transgression i fell far from that tree many years ago and i suspect you did as well i'm anything but innocent and perfect But again, David asked God to declare him innocent from his hidden faults. David is thinking forward to his Messiah. He's looking forward to the Lamb of God who would come and take away the sin of the world. And it's only through faith in the Son of God who took on human flesh and walked this earth some 2,000 years ago that any of us will ever stand before God and be declared blameless and innocent of our sin it will never ever be our own righteousness that saves us but rather the perfect righteousness of jesus christ when we place our faith in jesus christ the son of god when we embrace him and we believe that that he lived the perfectly sinless life that none of us can live and that he was mocked and spit upon and nailed to a cross where he hung with our sin upon him and he died and he was buried. And that on the third day he rose from the dead and ascended to his father where he sits even now at his right hand, interceding for his adopted children. When we embrace those truths of the gospel and we put our trust in Jesus Christ, We are adopted into God's eternal family. And the big change is, do we suddenly become perfect ourselves? No, we don't. But when the Father looks at us, he sees us covered by the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. God the Father looks at his adopted children and he declares that we are blameless and innocent of great transgression. Praise God. This is the gospel of grace. Now, I mentioned earlier that when we see God for whom he is in both creation and the scriptures, our natural spirit-directed response will be to draw close to God and worship him. And this is exactly what we see David doing here. He leans towards his Lord to worship him. Verse 14, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart Be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer." So David closes Psalm 19 in prayer and and worship of his God and his final description of his Lord, my rock and my redeemer. It's in perfect harmony with what we have learned about him in Psalm 19. This all-powerful creator whose glory David saw declared in the sun during the day and the moon and stars at night was the same God that David recognized in the scriptures, the personal God who cares for his people and wants to redeem them. David had come to see the merging of the rock and the redeemer in the one true God whom he worshiped. When we see God's glory and majesty, in creation and and we recognize his grace and his truth in the scriptures may the cry that wells up in our heart might the spirit do this work in our hearts and minds that like our brother david we would cry out let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight O lord our rock and our redeemer let's pray Abba, Father, thank you for your Word. Thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ. Thank you, Holy Spirit, for being in our midst and doing a beautiful, beautiful work in us as a church family and in us as individuals. We praise you, God, and we we worship you, in Christ's name. Amen.